Amen. Well, welcome. You guys look great. It's the five o'clock service. Thank you, guys. Those of you who moved to five o'clock from the morning, clap for yourselves. Thank you. I see you in the lobby. I see you in here. I know we got some in the VHQ venue. Both of our morning services were completely packed and overflow space. And many of you have moved to the evening service. And I just want to say thank you. We've had an incredible weekend. We had our weekender. Let me show you some pictures. You know how this goes if you've been coming around for a while. We do eight to 10 of these a year. They're a really big deal. Uh, We don't have 10 ways or two ways. We have one way to get connected to our church. Many of you, maybe in in, in this room, uh, as many of you have moved to Sunday nights, maybe most of you have been to the weekender, but I'm assuming that there are some people in here who you've been coming around for a while and you've not taken that next step. We're going to have one August 13th and August 14th. Write it down, sign up. It's going to be at the very end of this series that we're in. We're going to end this series And then we're going to have this weekender, and then we're going to launch 12 new community groups. That's a dozen new community groups. We currently have over 1,100 people in groups. Yeah, that's great. And so we're going to, but that's not, there's many more of you out there who are not yet meaningfully connected to a group, and we want to help you. And so I just want to say thank you again. Thank you for being here on Sunday evenings. If you'll type to, turn to 2 Timothy, we're getting to look and listen to a letter from the greatest church planter in human history. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7. And he introduces himself. And if you look at verse 1, 1, this is of 2 Timothy, Paul says, my name is Paul and I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. And and, and just so you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? Uh, Christ is his title. It means anointed one. It means uh, Messiah. It means the one to whom all of God's promises find their place and find their fulfillment. And what we're going to be doing over the next nine weeks is we're looking at the final letter of Paul to his favorite person. It's the final letter, and, and we'll get to this in a moment. He's going to be in a jail cell, and it's to his favorite person. If you look at verses one and two, he writes this letter to somebody. In verse two, he says, beloved Timothy. And Paul, he wrote multiple letters, but he only wrote two letters to one person, and it's Timothy. They had a unique relationship. They were so close. You go, have you ever been as close to somebody as Paul was to Timothy? Probably not. Paul circumcised Timothy. Some of you go, that's too close. It is too close, okay? Some of you go, what's circumcision? Pastor Dave, Pastor Caleb, want to answer your questions afterwards, okay? Um, uh, But let's look at 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 and 2. I want you to see this. And and as we're turning there, let me say this as well, uh, that we have a goal for every series. We want to see something happen in you and through you and beyond you. We're trying to get more and more intentional in how we do this. And so when you leave today, you're going to get a bookmark, okay? Uh, Before there were iPads, there were these things called books, okay? And they were codex and they had pages. And anyway, some of you still have a Bible like this. Uh, What this is, is this is a reading guide to help you get through the entire book of Acts, which tells the story of Paul and Timothy and the mission of God. Uh, throughout this series by reading half a chapter a day or one chapter a day. It's very easy. Here's our desire. What would it look like if every person in this room and online, if every person went to the word of God every day for a word from God? That's it. It may take you five minutes. It may take you 50 minutes. What would it look like if if a part of your morning or a part of your evening goes, I'm gonna open up the Bible and I believe that this is the word of God and I'm gonna ask God to uniquely speak personally to me every day from it. What would it look like if our whole church did that? That's our, one of our goals in this series. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to read you these first two verses. Here's what it says. Paul, 
an apostle. Okay, there aren't many of those. Uh, Paul, there was like 12 of them. They saw Jesus Christ visibly bodily. They wrote scripture. They played a unique role in the life of the church. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul understood himself only according to God and what God had done through him. He says this, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy. My beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so part of what I'm gonna do this evening is I'm going to, we're gonna get to verse seven. I'm gonna set up this whole letter. I'm gonna hopefully give you a framework to think through this letter because most people have probably not deeply studied 2 Timothy. Let me tell you four things about it that I want you to know at the beginning. First of all, it's a very, very personal letter, okay? These are all gonna be P's to make it easy for you to remember. It's a very personal letter. So Paul writes this to somebody that he deeply loves. Now listen, Paul wrote 13 letters. Yeah, you could argue, did he write Hebrews? That's an internal battle. People, people say, did he write Hebrews? Let's just say he wrote 13 letters. Of those 13, only four of them are personal. I mean, the majority of the times he's writing to a church. And then with Philemon, he writes a very short letter to an individual about Onesimus. And then with Titus, he writes to a pastor, Titus, and only Timothy gets two letters. And this is a great reminder, okay? Particularly men need to hear this. Men need to hear a lot of things, okay? Um, but particularly men need to hear this, that, that uh, Christianity is highly relational. It's highly personal. It's even emotional. I mean, here's Paul, the manliest man who ever manned, if that's such a thing. I mean, here's, here's Paul who's, you know, you know going to, to, to the uttermost parts of the earth, right? I and mean, Paul gets stoned and it says the next, not that type of stone, they threw rocks at him. Paul gets stoned. And then the next day he gets up and goes into another city and preaches. And this is what he does forever. And then at the same time, he writes letters. Some of us need to get better at communicating ourselves to our wives, to our spouses, to our children. Paul's highly personal. This is a great reminder. We say this all the time here. Discipleship happens in relationships. It's the only way that it happens. Don't, don't be fooled and think that this is Christianity. I mean, this is really important. Believe me, this is really important. Us coming together and sitting in rows, very important. Christians have done it for a very long time. But, but the tendency for Christians, where Christianity becomes religion is where people think it's all about the formal. It, it's all about, you know, this one hour right now and your community group and what you find in Christianity is Christianity is highly informal. It's highly relational. Paul's going to open his life. Paul's going to talk about their past together. Paul's going to know about Timothy and his family. Paul's going to talk about his family to Timothy, right? Most men have no idea how to do this, right? We know how to talk about some opinions. We know how to talk about sports. We know how to talk about weather. Paul knew how to tell another person what was going on in his heart. So it's personal. Secondly, it's pastoral. What's happening in the pastoral epistles, okay? And this is good for you to know. First Timothy, second Timothy, Titus. That section of your New Testament is what we call the pastoral epistles. It's the three letters where Paul's getting the church ready to live without apostles. Paul's like, listen, you know, I'm, Jesus is gonna live forever. I'm gonna live forever in heaven, but I'm not gonna live forever here. And so I need to get you ready to lead. And so what he's doing is, and this is encouraging, he's writing to uh, Timothy, who's a young man. We think, again, some of this is conjecture and speculation. We're trying to, whenever you read the New Testament, whenever you're reading these epistles, you're listening to one side of the phone call. It's like walking in on somebody, they're on the phone. You get to hear one side of the conversation. Uh, what we think is that Paul and Timothy roughly have known each other for about 15 years. That, that Paul, we see this first in Acts 16, he takes Timothy with him and they do a bunch of mission trips. Except for when they get to some really important cities, Paul leaves Timothy. 
And Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus. This is in Asia Minor. This is modern-day Turkey. This is a big city. This is a big church. Timothy is a young man. We know that Timothy would not yet be 40 because he's called a young man. And in that culture, you were considered a young man until you were 40, right? Same here, right? As soon as you turn 40, the word young falls off of man, right? You're just, you're just man, okay? And nothing you do is impressive anymore. Um, you got to do it all before you're 40. So anyway, um, <clears throat> but what's interesting is if you look here, uh, Paul says in verse two, I believe it's verse two, if you look there, it's in one or two. He says, grace, mercy, and peace to you. Now, that's really interesting. You know, this tends to be flyover territory when people read and study their Bibles. They don't read a lot of the intros. What's interesting is every introduction that Paul writes, he at least puts grace and peace in. I mean, all of his letters, grace and peace. In fact, every one of Paul's 13 letters also ends grace to you. But it's only to Timothy that he also mentions mercy. Now you go, why? This is an important concept. And when I, when I, this book is, is applicable not to just pastors, but to all people. And you know, to, to anybody who's going to be a leader, which, which every Christian can be a leader because they have influence. It has principles for every boss. It has principles for every coach. It has principles for every parent. And what he says here is he says to him, grace, mercy, and peace. Now, what is grace? Grace helps you deal with the root of sin. Mercy helps you deal with the results of sin. The root of sin is like, well, something happens and I need to be able to take this to Christ and I need to be able to repent and I need to be able to forgive. I need to get to the heart level of this. But also the longer you're in ministry, the more you find yourself dealing with and the more you're a parent, the more you're a pastor, the more you're a coach, the more you're a boss, the more you're a community group leader, you're gonna be dealing with the results of sin. This is because the more that you step out, particularly as a spiritual leader, as a spiritual leader, the more you're going to see the best and worst things in people's lives. And you're going to see their sin. And even more hard to you, oftentimes, you're going to see the sin that's been done to them and the effects. You're going to see the struggles. And you're going to uniquely have to give them mercy. Now, why peace? Peace has to do with relationships, right? So you can think about that. The root of sin, the results of sin, and the relationships that are connected to sin. And how they can be restored and reconciled. The vertical relationship with God, the horizontal relationship with each other. And what Paul is doing is he's getting the next generation ready to lead. You know, we don't know for sure. We estimate that most of Jesus' disciples were in their late teens, early 20s. Who led the first student in college ministry? His name was Jesus Christ, okay? He was leading a, lots of young men. And what, what I think happens is often in our society, um, you, most young people are giving their youth and they're giving their strength to foolishness. And what men are particularly, men are like trucks. The more weight you put on them, the straighter they drive. And, and men need a lot of weight. You know, what was Alexander the Great doing in his 20s? Conquering the known world. There's a famous story of Alexander the Great in his 20s, weeping because there was no more lands to conquer. The average 20-year-old man is weeping because he can't find the next microbrew beer. It's a different time. Third, it's a prison letter. So it's a personal letter, highly emotional, highly relational. It's a pastoral letter. I'm getting the church ready to live without me and interpret the scriptures and lead. Third, it's a prison letter. Uh, Paul's writing from prison. I've been to this prison, we think. They think it was, I was in Rome. This is about 15 years ago. And I went to the prison where they say Timothy, or sorry, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. Now, if you're trying to put the whole Bible together, because some of you guys really know your Bible, this is a different place than Paul was in in Acts 28. At the end of the book of Acts, Paul's in Rome, but it says he's under house arrest. And he was free to teach and he was free to disciple and he was free to come and go and people were free to visit him. This is something very, very different. Paul is in prison and he knows he's not going to get out. This is a great reminder. It's like, you know, it's embarrassing to be in prison. 
It's embarrassing to be in prison, even if you're in prison for the right reason. This is why we'll see this next week. Paul has to keep going to Timothy. Please don't be embarrassed to me. I'm not embarrassed. I know why I'm here. But he's in prison. And it's actually a great reminder. It's like, you know, Paul knew when to disobey the law. I mean, it's kind of scary. So the book of Acts, right? You know, the book of Acts starts with like lots of preaching and lots of people getting converted and lots of people getting baptized. And the last half of the book of Acts is court cases and prison sentences. Not as encouraging, okay? And here's Paul. And it's a good reminder that the Bible is the written down mission of God and the Bible is also written on mission. Both those are important. It's the written down mission of God. So, you know, what is Genesis to Revelation? God's pursuit of his people. That's what it is. We know that. So it's a big story of how God pursued his people. But when you read the New Testament, it, it doesn't really make sense to us unless we ourselves are living on mission because the, the whole New Testament was written on mission. Paul's not writing this from some ivory tower. He's writing this from a dark and damp and dangerous prison cell. Finally, it's a parting letter. So this is kind of all set up. So it's a personal letter, one man to another. It's a pastoral letter getting us ready to lead. And by implication and application, you can take these principles. It's a prison letter. It's just reminded, this is, he's writing you know, from a jail cell. And then, and then finally, it's a parting letter. It basically, this is Paul's final letter. First Timothy, Paul writes like he's going to be back again. It, it, Paul writes to Timothy hey, like he's going to be temporarily gone. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes like he's going to be permanently gone. And, and here we know by tradition that Paul got his head cut off. Now, why, you know, believe me, they, they wanted to crucify Paul, but they couldn't because he was a Roman citizen. They would have loved to do a bunch of things to him. But because he was a Roman citizen, they couldn't. And so Paul knows my head's going to get cut off. I have a limited amount of time. And though all scripture is breathed out by God, equally inspired, okay? I believe there's something about listening to the final words of the apostle to the Gentiles as he knows he's going to die, right? I mean, could you imagine right now, if, you know, imagine you, know, you go home and you find a lump and you go to the doctor and God forbid it's stage four cancer. You know, I, well, I know what would happen. You'd be angry and you'd be depressed and you'd cry and, and so would I and all that kind of stuff. And, and then when you finally calm down, you would think as clearly about your life as you'd ever thought. That's what happens. If you had a year to live, you would, you, all of a sudden your relationships would be prioritized and your schedule would be prioritized and you would know a bunch of new things about yourself. And your life would be very different. And so Paul, in one sense, he always lived like that. Now he knows his death is right around the corner. And so he's writing very, very clearly. And what he's doing in verses three to seven is he wants to encourage Timothy. And I've told you this before, encourage means to put courage in someone. And what I want us to do in verses three through seven is I want you to read this and I want you to say, God, would you put courage in me? God, would you put courage in me? Because I've got a lot of things in my life that I want to do. You know, G.K. Chesterton said, courage is the main virtue in life. It's the virtue that if you don't have it, it doesn't matter if you have other virtues. So you're compassionate, not helpful if you're not courageous to be compassionate. So you're generous, not helpful, unless you're courageous to be generous. You have the gift of evangelism, not helpful if you don't courageously exercise it. And so with the time left, I want us to look at verses three through seven, and I want us to see how Paul, as he's dying, wants to put courage in a young man. And I will say by extension, the entire church. In fact, why is this letter written? And why does Paul write the letter saying, Paul, an apostle? It's like, did Timothy not know that, is it Paul, an apostle, or is is this letter from Paul the plumber? It's like, no, no, we know it's Paul the apostle. Why Why is this letter? This letter would, many think, was a public recommendation letter for Timothy the rest of his life. For his authority, for his pastoral ministry. It was his letter of ordination, we could say. And it was meant to be read out loud. And it was meant to encourage others. So with all that said, let's turn to verse three. If you turn with me to verse three, 
Here's what it says. He says, I thank God. So he's in a prison cell. He's cold. We'll find out in chapter four. He's going to die, but he finds a way to be thankful. I thank God. And here's the first thing he thinks about the past. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. Now that word can be translated a lot of different ways. I think actually it's most compelling that it's translated my parents. That's how John Piper, who pastored in Minneapolis, Minnesota, that's how he thinks this, and he, he knows Greek very well. He thinks this actually should be translated my parents. And it makes sense because Paul in a few minutes is gonna be talking to Timothy about his mom and his grandma. Isn't this an amazing thought that as Paul's on death row, he's thinking about his mom and dad. Of course he is. You know, we, we don't know a lot of things about the influence of parents except that every parent is the most important person in their kid's life for good or for ill. That's what we know. And Paul is very, very thankful. He's gonna be very, very thankful for his Jewish background. You know, it's like, you think about it, it's like Paul probably had great parents. You know, and here's something that's completely politically incorrect. Judaism is incomplete. Judaism finds its fulfillment and finds its completion in Christianity and in the person of Jesus Christ. And that, that's actually how Paul thought of it. That's how Paul understood it. Go read the book of Acts. It's like Paul goes into, Paul does the same thing everywhere, right? Paul goes in, he's like, where's the, where's the Jewish synagogue? And he would go into the Jewish synagogue and it says, from the scriptures. And what does it mean, the scriptures? The New Testament? No, he's writing the New Testament. From the Hebrew Bible. From Genesis to Malachi, he reasoned with them from the scriptures about how Jesus was the Christ. So he's very thankful for his Jewish background and his Jewish faith. Paul was a Pharisee. He had great parents. Parents, what a, what a call up for us to invest. So he says, I thank, I thank God. And then he says this, whom I serve with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly, this is verse three, in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded, by the way, it's the third time he's gonna either use remember or reminded. He's thinking a lot about the past. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Have you ever read a biography? You, you know, every once in a while, I'll get like real no biography. I'm like, all right, that's it. I got to read this biography on Winston Churchill. I got to read this biography on Jonathan Edwards. I got to read this biography on Abraham Lincoln. And if you ever pick up a biography, does anyone else get discouraged reading biographies? Well, I do sometimes, right? Because it's like, oh, it's 2,000 pages long. Okay, that's discouraging. And then you open up and the first like 200 pages is on his parents. I mean, that's every good biography on anyone who's meaningful. It's like, what's well, it's, it's like, I don't know if I want to read the first 100 pages, but, but we understand that every, you're like, biography, some of you don't understand this. Every documentary okay, on Netflix about somebody. If, if you watch it, it's always about their parents or their grandparents first. What, what, here's the idea that everybody inherits a legacy from their family, a spiritual legacy, and everybody leaves a spiritual legacy. Paul says, I'm really grateful for my, for my spiritual legacy. And then he talks to Timothy. He says, Timothy, look, it's, and we'll get to this. I mean, it's like, Timothy, it's not, there's somebody missing, right? Who, who's not mentioned here? The dad. We're like, oh, that's normal. Dads, yeah, dads are normally out of the picture. Nope, that's normal in our broken society. It's like, well, okay, you've got grandma, and thank God for her, and you got mom. And we don't know the full story, but we know that, you know, again, we're trying to put it all together. It seems like grandma comes to faith in Christ. We don't know how. Through the preaching of probably one of the apostles, and she believes. And at some point, very much after that, this grandmother, and God bless grandmas, she invests in her daughter and leads her daughter most likely to Christ. 
And we assume at this point, her daughter Eunice is married to Timothy's dad. It's interesting because what happens is we, we get excited when people come to faith in Christ. And that's always exciting, always. But I've seen this long enough that when someone comes to Christ, it often can make the relationships in the family messy and different. And, and oftentimes, I see this all the time, a woman comes to faith in Christ and her husband doesn't. And it's heartbreaking, right? Because she's like, I want to be generous to the church and he doesn't. I want to be meaningfully connected to the church. He wants to play golf. I want to pass on a certain value system to the family. He doesn't. And it's very, very heartbreaking for a lot of women. What's encouraging in the story is that God can use even broken situations to raise up the next generation. Here's Timothy. He does, we'll talk about his dad in a few minutes. He doesn't seem to have a dad that's in the picture. We're told one other place his dad was Greek. We're never told anything positive about his dad. We're never told that his dad believed. Maybe he did one day. But at this point, at the end of Paul's life, there's still no mention of Timothy's dad. But God greatly uses Eunice, greatly uses Lois. Now, most people think the reason that Timothy is so timid, I mean, one of his nicknames, you know, kind of historically has been Timid Timothy. One of the reasons that he's so timid is that he doesn't have a dad. And I don't understand how this works, but it tends to be true from my experience as well as from everything I've read, that particularly men who have not had men, particularly fathers, invested and deeply involved in their life, they're, they're timid. They're fearful. A lot of times they don't even know why. And I, can, I know a couple reasons. It's because what a dad is, is a dad is like a backstop. You know, think about a catcher in baseball and a backstop. It's, it, it's there in the background. What a good father says is, get out there and do something and I'm behind you. In fact, more deeply than that, this is what a dad says. And dads don't even know that they're doing this. But this is what happens. This is, and if I tell you this and you had a good dad, you'll know this. What dads do is four things. A dad says, it can be done. And then a dad says, I did it. Not perfectly, right? I'm, I'm a perfect example of an imperfect father. Uh, but I did it. You can do it. And then I'm here to help. Isn't that beautiful? That's what every dad says. Because what happens in life is, you know, particularly men, they get, they get overwhelmed. Well, how will I make enough money? Well, how will I buy a house? Well, how will I stay married? And listen, if dad didn't do it, it's harder for him to do it. But if you can look and you go, well, I, I don't know how. I mean, I remember having this happen to me. I remember graduating from college. I got my first job and I had my first little room that I shared with, you know, and I, we had this little house and I had one room and we split the rent three ways and I was completely overwhelmed by how expensive it was. And then I was like, you have, to, you have to pay for utilities too? You know, I was like, just all, you know, all of this stuff. Groceries are expensive, eating out's expensive. And I remember having this thought at one point. My dad's been paying for this for my whole family, for my whole life. And you just have this thing, oh, maybe I can do it. Your marriage gets very, very hard and you think, well, how would I do it? There's other places to go, but one thing you go is, well, dad did it. I don't know how, I know they had some rough years, dad did it. Well, how do you work and be faithful in a career? I don't know all the answers, but I know that dad did it. And so what, what happens here is, and this is important, look at verse two. Paul says, you're my beloved child. Paul takes over the spiritual areas that, his, that Timothy's dad failed in. See, sometimes you have a biological father who's also a great spiritual father. Sometimes you have a bad biological father. He's absent or he abandoned or he abdicated his authority. And God will often raise up spiritual dads. And where do you find them in the church? I mean, I don't know if you know this. This is one of the reasons we have a student ministry. You know I mean? Every once in a while, it's like, you know, people might ask me, why do you have a student ministry? I mean, shouldn't just the dads disciple the kids? It's like, yeah, but what about the guy who doesn't have a dad? 
What about the non-Christian kid at, you know, at Reynolds High School who comes to faith in Christ from a broken family? How are we going to help him? It's like, well, this is what we do. It's like the church is where you come to get, get spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. And so Paul comes in, and I want you to look what he encourages him. He speaks to him like a father. The first thing he says to him, look at this. He says, I have a clear conscience. You'll see that in verse three. Now, that's really interesting. And he goes, Timothy, I want you to know this. Because Timothy, by the way, is he's at a very hard church. And in Acts chapter 20, we're told the church of Ephesus that there's gonna be wolves that are gonna come in, that it's going to be attacked, that even people from the leadership will turn on, on that church. And so he says, first thing I want you to know, and you'll see this in verse three, Paul says, I have a clear conscience. Now, what is your conscience? Now, every one of you has a conscience. Your conscience is that which accuses or excuses you. For some people say it's a voice. Some people say it's a feeling. Most people say it doesn't tell you what to do. It more tells you what not to do. But we all have this conscience. Now, Paul says, I have a clear conscience. Why is this important? Because, well, Paul's suffering. Paul's in jail. Now, this is, this is really important because when life gets really, really tough, you'll wake up at three in the morning and you'll think to yourself about your life. And what you want to be able to say to yourself in, in that moment, here's what a clear conscience means. I know why I've done what I've done. I, I did what I thought was best according to scripture. I've repented where I know I need to repent. I have a clear conscience. What you don't want to do is you don't want to get in a situation, you know, you move your family somewhere and, you know, they, your family isn't flourishing and you're not connected to a church and all of a sudden you, you, you realize one night you wake up three in the morning because, you know, sometimes that has to happen because you're, you're so busy, you don't even, you're not even thinking. You wake up three in the morning and you realize, oh, I get it. The reason I moved here was for the money. And now my whole family's not flourishing and I know that the reason I did this was for money. Or you do something and you go, the reason I did this was to please people. I'm a people pleaser. That's why I made these decisions. That's not helpful. There's God's grace in all this. You go, I, I know I did this. I did this because I'm scared. I did this because I care what other people think about me. And what Paul says is you want to have a clear conscience. A clear conscience basically says a couple things, the way that you continue to have a clear conscience. You, you check your own motives for why you do what you do. Now, look, every time that I talk about something offensive, which is basically every week, okay? Um, but, but, every, no, but every time I talk about something that I know, you know, especially young people are going to be offended by, you know? And it's like, well, I'm gonna talk about some type of sexual sin or I'm gonna talk about homosexuality or I'm gonna talk about abortion or I'm gonna talk about transgenderism. It doesn't matter, whatever I'm gonna talk about. And then every time somebody gets upset and it's, that's fine too. Um, but but what, what helps me deal with it is I just, in my conscience, I just go, nope, I'm not mad at anybody. Nope, I have no alternative motives of why I'm teaching this. Nope. I don't think that sexual sin is any different or any worse. No, I actually believe this. I actually believe, no, I know what church history says. No, I know what the Bible says. No, I'm not, I, I'm not doing this out of anger. No, I believe this is actually for human flourishing. I can't tell you how rewarding it is and how freeing it is when you check your motives. You go, I know why I'm doing this. And so what he says, and the second thing that, that a clear conscience says is I, I've done everything that I know to do. Uh, you know, there I saw uh, recently, I've, was following this guy who died of stage four pancreatic cancer. Very, very, very sad story. And uh, he had three young kids. I'm talking very young. I'm talking, you know, he found out he had stage four cancer. He had a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old. And I was watching these videos that he, that he, he basically, so he, these kids are so young, they're never going to remember him. And he knew that. And he said, he, so he would shoot these videos that they would later watch when they grew up, old, when they got older. And in one of the videos he shoots, he says to the kids, he says, I want you and mom to know that I did everything I could to fight this illness. And I never gave up. 
And I want you to know that when I found out I had nine months left, I did everything that I could to pass on as much as I, information as I could to you guys and to take care of your mom to the best that I could. And I heard him say later in an interview, he said, that's it. I don't get the choice if I'm going to die in nine months or not. That's, I don't get that choice. I only get the choice if I can die with a clear conscience. And the way that I'm going to die with a clear conscience is I'm going to be able to look at my wife and my kids and say, I did everything I could with the time I had left. Paul had a clear conscience. Paul also prays. Look at verse four. Paul says, I pray for you night and day. You know, it's like, what, what can you do when you can't do anything else? You can pray. That's it. It's like, you know, but Paul, can you preach for me? No. Paul, there's a difficult situation, you know, here. Can you come and speak to the person? No. I'd really like to grab coffee and talk to you about this. No, I can't do that. The only thing Paul could do is pray for him. And then look what he says in verse four or five, if you look there. He says, I remember your tears. And everybody wants to know, when were they crying? When was Timothy crying? Well, there's at least two places that Timothy most likely cried. Because he says, uh, you know, he says there, I remember your tears and I long to see you. Uh, there's two places we think that, he, that Timothy potentially cried. The first is when uh, Paul would say goodbye for these missionary trips. You know, because we say goodbye. If you've ever gone on a mission trip or you ever go, you go somewhere, what do you normally say? I'll text you when I land. Right? We'll FaceTime while we're gone. I'll, I'll be posting to social media. It's like none of that existed. It's like I'm getting on this boat. Every, I hope I'll make it to the next piece of land. I have lots of enemies and everything I do is very dangerous. And so every time they're saying goodbye, it's very, very hard. You know, I saw recently one of our missionaries who's in India, they sent a video of their three kids um, living in India. They got three young kids and they are asking the kids all these questions. What's your favorite food in India? You know, all these questions. And the kids were answering them. And then they said to the, all three of the kids, what's the hardest thing about being a missionary kid? And immediately, and I think what surprised me is how quickly the eight-year-old on the couch responded. They said, what's the hardest thing about being a missionary? He said, all of the goodbyes. And here he is at eight years old and he gets it. When I'm a missionary, I got to say goodbye all the time. And it's emotional and it's hard. The second place that we think that Timothy probably cried is if you look at verse six, Paul says, um, fan into flame the gift that you received by the laying on of my hands. What we think is that Timothy is going to be a young man taking over a very influential church in Asia Minor, Ephesus. And, you know, the idea of ordination, the idea of commissioning, which we're going to do in a few weeks with Jeremy Woods and his team, the idea of laying hands on somebody and praying God's blessing over them. Because when you put your hand on somebody, that represents the hand of God on their life. And the hand of God represents the plan and purposes of God in their life. And so most people think, well, you know, it was completely overwhelming because Paul was leaving and he said, now you're in charge of Ephesus. You're going to be the lead pastor here. And they put the hands on Timothy and prayed God's blessing over him. And any man, no matter how masculine he may think he is, or how strong he may think he is, or how unemotional he may think he is, is going to melt when a godly older man who invested deeply in him puts his hands on him and prays God's blessing over him. And so he's trying to encourage him. He says, Timothy, look, I, I, I have a clear conscience. Look to my life. Because sometimes, by the way, that's what you have to do. If you want to be courageous, you have to borrow courage and confidence from other people. I do this all the time. One of my favorite questions to ask myself is what would a great leader do in this situation? And you just start thinking about people. You start thinking about people that you admire. Paul's telling him about his own life. And then in verse six, Timothy is told for the first time something he needs to do. So far, it's all been outside of him. 
oh, the will of God is in your life and you've had you know, a great grandmother and mother and I'm praying for you and look to my example and look, listen to our past. But in verse six, I want you to see what he says. In verse six, he says this. For this reason, I remind you. So in other words, I've been reminding myself of some things. It's time for me to remind you of something. I remind you to fan into flame. So the idea there is that um, the flame's almost out. And by the way, we don't think this is a one-time thing. Like Paul's, you know, Timothy's uh, flame is about to go out. He's at an all-time low and he needs to bring it back up. No, we think this is, this is the daily continuous call of being a Christian, which is I need to fan into flame the gifts God's given me. Here's what he says. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Here's what this is a call to. It's a call to personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. There are certain things that nobody else can do for you. And, and right, it's like nobody else can develop your gifts except for you. Other people can pray for you. Other people can influence you. What happens there is the idea that when you become a Christian, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. He comes and dwells in you. You get the gift of salvation. And you get gifts along with that. And what gifts are is spiritual gifts are God's grace to you that are for other people. That's a good way to think about gifts. So it's like, what's the purpose of the gift of serving? Well, so that you could serve other people. What's the, purpose, what's the point of the gift of generosity? So that you could be generous to other people, right? What's the gift of leadership? So that people can be led. What's the gift of teaching? So that others can have knowledge. What's the gift of wisdom? So that others can have direction. What's the gift of faith? so to help others believe when they're struggling? What's the gift of evangelism? To pass on the gospel and see people converted. And what he's saying is, I want, you to under, I want you to identify your gifts. Now, most people don't know what their gifts are. Peter Drucker, he's a business guy. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but, but Peter Drucker said most people, he's talking about the business world, he said most people think they know what their strengths are, and most of those people are wrong. <laughs> And, and I, I find it interesting that Paul talks about the gift connected to the laying on of hands. Here's what that means. The only way you're going to identify and understand your gifts is in community. That's the only way. You can't, I mean, yes, you can read your Enneagram book. You can, you know, you can take your Myers-Briggs. You can Google spiritual gift tests, what all, that, all that stuff. But the way that you're going to do it is while you're on mission, all the, and you're in community. Both those are important. You're on mission and you're in community together. Somebody says to you, do you realize how compassionate you are? Like you're uniquely a compassionate person. Like, I think you might have the gift of mercy. Like, man, I, when you teach, it makes sense. People listen and they take notes. I think you might have the gift of teaching. By the way, a gift is something that you, you know you have a gift if you thrive in it, but other people only function in it. You know, you might say, man, I, I see the way that you share your life and you open your home. I think you might actually have the gift of generosity. Now, what would it look like if in here every person that's in this room or that's watching online, what would it look like if everybody in here just said, I'm gonna take responsibility for identifying my gifts and then developing them and deploying them in the church? What, what an impact we could have in our city. Now, what hinders this? What hinders this is verse seven. Paul, Paul's going to encourage him. This, this is some way is the key verse in this whole book. 2 Timothy 1, verse seven. I want us to read this together. 2 Timothy 1, 7 says this. For God... So four is connecting, right? It's connecting everything else. 
Why do I want you to be courageous? Why do I want you to be bold? Why do I want you to fan into flame the gifts that God has given you? Why do I not want you to forget the past? Why do I want you to know that I'm praying for you? For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul ends by talking about fear, right? And if you read it right there, it's, I want you to see this right in scripture. You know, fear is not ultimately biological. Fear is not ultimately emotional. Fear is not ultimately psychological. Fear is ultimately, in this idea, it's a spirit. And it's not the Greek word phobia where we get phobias from, that, that Greek word. It's a different Greek word that Paul's using for fear. It means to shrink back and be a coward. And some of you are just very, very fearful. You don't even know why you're fearful. You don't know why there's all of these opportunities in front of you and you're so afraid to take advantage of any opportunity or take any risk. And it's beginning to define your life. You're a fearful person. Some of you are so fearful, you don't know why you won't speak up. You won't speak up at work. You won't speak up at home. You won't speak up in your neighborhood. Some of you won't take a stand for anything. It's a call to be courageous. Now, here's what it means to be courageous. It means to speak and be willing to suffer. That's what it means. There are a couple examples of how to be courageous without doing that. But almost every call on your life to be courageous will be, am I willing to speak and am I willing to suffer? And let me just tell you this. The quality and influence of your life will depend on your ability and on your willingness to speak and to suffer. Think about it. It's like, why won't some of you have the conversation that you have to have with your spouse or with your grown kids or with your rebellious teenage daughter? Why won't you talk to her? Because you're afraid. I get it. You're afraid if I talk about it and then she responds or he responds, it's going to make everything worse. And there's going to be suffering with it. Why won't you speak up at work? There's things happening and you won't say anything. It's like, we know why, because you don't want to suffer. Why, are there, why do you watch people who you love, friends, fall into patterns of sin, eating too much, drinking too much, workaholism, neglecting their family, and you don't say anything? We know why, because you don't want to speak, because then you suffer. We had this nice young lady, she came up to us last week. She's crying. She comes up to me and she says, I need to get baptized. I said, well, that's good news. Why are you crying? I'm afraid to tell my mom and dad. It's like, I get it. Okay. This is, a, this is an issue with lots of baptism. Am I going to tell everybody? Am I going to go public in my faith? Am I going to speak about this? What would it look like if we were encouraged and, and we were challenged and we really believed that we were called to speak and to suffer? Well, listen, we have an incredible example in Jesus Christ. But let me, let me tell you this. Look, he says, we have power, we have love, we have self-control. What do those three words remind you of? If you know your Bibles, hopefully the Holy Spirit. What is power? Power is the ability for things to be different. Power is, what, you're more powerful, the ability for change. And the Bible in Acts chapter one says the Holy Spirit comes, will have power. I want you to know there's a difference between the residency of the Holy Spirit, which every Christian gets in them, and the power of the Holy Spirit, the leading and the filling. Why love and self-control? Well, that's the first and last of the fruits of the Spirit. 
Paul's saying if you're going to not walk in a, in a spirit of fear, but instead you're going to walk without fear, you're going to have to walk in the spirit of God and the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ was incredibly fearless. What's the first thing he does before he goes into public ministry? Do you remember? After he gets baptized, it says he goes into the wilderness and Satan tempts him. Jesus Christ fearlessly confronts and deals with the demonic. What's his whole ministry? He's teaching. He fearlessly deals with the religious leaders of the day and the political leaders of the day. He fearlessly connects with the least and the last in the culture. He was completely fearless. There's only one time in the scriptures where Jesus is fearful. Do you know what it is? When he has to deal with the wrath of God. It's like, that's the only thing we should be afraid of. Jesus, who wasn't afraid of anything, was afraid of that. That's why he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, let this cup pass because he didn't want to experience the wrath of God. But the good news of the gospel is that he did exactly just that. There's two parts of the, uh, when you think of Jesus Christ, think of his perfection and his punishment. That Jesus perfectly lived and obeyed and lived a courageous life, fully obeying all of God's commands for us. Not only that, he dies on the cross and pays the penalty and the punishment and takes the wrath of God and rises from the dead. And now the Bible says the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives in every true believer. And we don't need to walk in a spirit of fear, but in one in love, power, and self-control. Now, in a room this size, I've got to believe that there are some people who, as I'm speaking to you, you would just say, I'm in that season. I'm in a season uniquely where I need courage in my life. There are some circumstances. There are some situations there's something at work, there's something in my family, there's something with relationships, and I just need courage. I need someone to pray for me. I need the courage in my life, I need the courage this summer to speak and to suffer. If that's you, if you say, I need courage, I'm gonna ask you right now to please stand. Please stand if you need courage. If you say, I'm in a season, thank you, thank you. If you say, I, I uniquely need courage in my life, thank you, I see that, yes, thank you. If you're near these men and women, would you, you feel comfortable, stand up if you're near them, put your hand on them. We're gonna pray over them. And listen, this is what we believe. We actually believe that something special happens in the gathered assembly. When the spirit of God and the people of God and the word of God come together and we decide we're going to honor Jesus Christ and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to mightily work, he comes. The church is a family and we're here to share one another's burdens. If you're not near someone, maybe extend a hand toward them. We're gonna pray for these people. I thank you for their courage, Lord. I thank you for the courage to stand. We don't know what's going on in each one of these situations. Some of these people, they need the courage to, to move back toward a relationship or to stay in a relationship. Some of these people need the courage to leave a relationship. Some of these people might need the courage to get baptized. Some might need the courage to talk to a family member. Some might need the courage to start a career. Some might need the courage to leave a career. Some may need the courage to share something they've never shared with one person they trust. Lord, we put our hands on these people to represent, Lord, you love them. You have a plan and you have a purpose for their lives. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit. That as Jesus Christ lived his life by the power and person and presence of the Holy Spirit, they would live their lives.
Lord, I pray over them love and self-control. That the Bible says that love casts out fear. And the Bible says that you do not give us a spirit of fear. That's called the spirit of slavery. You've given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Lord, and I pray for self-control, Lord. We, we, we want to be not fearful, but we also want to be not foolish. Lord, I pray you'd give these people prudence without them being paranoid. You'd give them wisdom without worrying. And you'd help them to move forward, Lord. You'd help us as the church to pray for them legitimately, to come alongside them and to bear these burdens with them. We ask all of this in the mighty name of our fearless Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.